Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I am the pastor here at LOPC. And whether you are with us in person or on the live stream, we want to offer all of you a very, very warm welcome. We are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us today as we exalt our God and our Savior and celebrate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're visiting with us today, we are thrilled that you are here. We hope that you were greeted when you came in and were offered one of our, what I call, swag bags. It has wonderful goodies and also allows you an opportunity to get to know us. And so we would like to uh, develop a relationship and a friendship and do so in as non-threatening a way as possible. And that's why also if you're on the end of a row, I'd ask you to get started with the friendship pads. This is for everyone. Uh, let's us know you're here and we can minister to you appropriately. This is a very, very special day as we will be celebrating the baptism of Leah May Skilling's dad in a little while. And so their family we want to welcome. Uh, this, you know, is a means of grace to all of us as we get to witness uh, Leah being enfolded and included into Christ's visible church this morning. What an exciting time, and so we're grateful for that. A couple of other announcements. I'm not, you'll be able to read through the rest of these at your convenience later. Mark your calendars for two weeks from today, February 19th at 9.15 a.m. The Landrums will be here. They will be giving their missionaries that we are privileged to support. They will be sharing during the Sunday school hour, and so that will be a combined Sunday school class, and so we would like to have everybody be a part of that, as well as giving an update during the worship service that morning. And so mark your dates for February 19th. And I chose this as the last one to give an announcement with, but we really want to encourage any of you all who might be led to help our deacons. There is a ministry called Deacon Assistance, and that is, you might think, oh, wait a second, I'm not, I'm not qualified to be a deacon. I'm not sure I'm qualified to be an assistant to the deacon. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Let me, let me tell you, we, you can help out whether it's collecting bulletins after a service, whether it is helping them make coffee on a Sunday morning, whether it's getting chairs put together. There are all sorts of ways. If you go out the narthex, preferably after the service, not during the sermon. That's just a preference if I could choose. But after the service and look out on the table in the narthex, you will see a sign-up sheet along with a list of just some of the possibilities where you can lend a hand in the works of mercy and service, different categories where you can lend a hand to the deacons. And we would love to have you take part. Obviously, that. Male and female, absolutely. Deacon assistants, everyone. This is, you know, you're welcome to, to do that. So we want to encourage that. And if you're led, sign up, and then one of the deacons will be in touch with you. And so, friends, those are some of the things. Like I said, you have a whole bulletin list of things. But we are here to worship. We are here in the presence of Almighty God. We are here to glorify and exalt him. As we hear the prelude, let's prepare our hearts for worship.
Come, Christians, join to sing. Alleluia. Amen. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Father, we thank you that you are God. You are God Almighty. You are the Lord, sovereign over heaven and earth, creator of all things visible and invisible. And you have called us this morning to gather in your name, in your presence, and we invoke your great name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to join with us to receive our praises, to hear our prayers, to receive our confession and to forgive us of our sins and to show us Jesus, to help us, enable us to be astonished by your grace and to fall more deeply in love with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing, Oh, Worship the King. of dust and feeble as frail. God knows our frame. He knows how weak and how fragile we are, both from living in a fallen world as well as from our own sinfulness, our own simple mistakes, our own foolishness, our own pride. Jeremiah put it this way. When he said to the people of God, he said, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. 
Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people, now that is, here's Jeremiah as the mouthpiece of God saying God's covenant people, the church, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns or wells for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That means every single one of us, here's kind of a anatomy of sin, if you will. Here's what we do. We turn away from God, who's the fountain of life. He's our satisfaction. He's the source of life. He's the source of purpose, of meaning, of power. And our natural gravitational pull, if you will, is to turn away from him. And because we have to love something, we can't just stay neutral. We then attach ourselves to other things. And Jeremiah says those are broken wells. They can't hold water. They can't come through for us. They can't work for us. Those things in your life are different than those things that might be in my life. I could stand up here for quite a while and share with you all the different ways I turn away from the Lord and dig broken wells. But you have particular things that might be unique to your background, baggage, personality, upbringing, all of, the, all of those things. Take a few moments, engage with the Lord, come clean with him. What are those areas that you look for satisfaction, you look to meet maybe very legitimate needs in things other than Jesus Christ? In a few minutes, I will lead us in in a corporate prayer of confession. Let's pray. Let us pray together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. And again from Jeremiah 31, hear the assurance of pardon. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity 
and I will remember their sin no more. What an incredible promise, the promise of the new covenant, because Jesus Christ has fulfilled everything. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. God says, I will forgive their iniquity. And this promise amazes me. I will remember their sins no more. And that does not mean that God somehow has a bad memory. That means they have been dealt with. They have been dealt with in Jesus Christ. And so from God's point of view, he can declare us right because our sins have been dealt with. I don't know about you, but I need to be set free in that. I need to be set free in that more and more. We come now to a very special time of our worship service. I would like to invite Leah, May, Skilling's dad down front. And Leah, if you feel like it, bring your mom and dad. Leah, we promise this water is as warm and nice as, as possible in terms of this. You know, in that promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, you got the heart of the covenant that says that God will be our God and we will be his people. And this morning we are celebrating this sacrament that's been instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ as a sign and a seal of that covenant. A sign and seal of the covenant of grace. So it's a sign and seal. So this is a sign, just like the Lord's Supper is covenant renewal, baptism is covenant initiation. Leah is being brought into Christ's visible church this morning. And this is so exciting. Grace is truly being conferred upon her. Baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, of her union with Christ, of engrafting into Christ, of the forgiveness of sins. As a sign, the water in baptism both represents and signifies the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ, the sanctifying virtue of the Spirit of Christ against the dominion of sin, and the corruption of our sinful nature. We see that Jesus Christ blessed little children by admitting them into his presence, embracing them, saying, for such is the kingdom of God. And that children, by baptism, are received solemnly into the bosom of the visible church. The inward grace of baptism of the, and the virtue of baptism is not tied to the moment, to the historical moment when it is administered. Ellen and Travis, one of your privileges, but duties as parents, will be to help Leah to remember her baptism, as you're called to remember your own baptism, and as all of us are called to remember our baptism. You are called to teach her the Word of God, to raise her in the fear and the nurture and the admonition of our holy faith, to pray with and for her, to set an example of piety and godliness in her life, and to bring her up 
in the fear and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The covenant promise, God's covenant promise, is that for to you is this promise and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. And I will establish my covenant between you and thee and thy seed after thee throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Travis and Ellen, I want to ask you these questions indicating your acknowledgement and promise in raising Leah. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? And do you claim God's covenant promises in her behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation as you do for your own? And do you now unreservedly dedicate Leah to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her, that you will teach her the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And to the congregation of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church, I'm going to ask you this question, and if you commit to this, acknowledge by saying, we do. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Let us pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you relate to us by means of a covenant. And that that is not just some sort of business deal. That is your bonding yourself to your people. And so we pray and we praise you that you are a covenant-keeping, faithful God, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Our prayer this morning, even though the virtue of this sacrament may not be tied into the historical moment of its administration, we boldly ask that there will never be a day in Leah's life when she does not know Jesus Christ as her God, her Lord, and her Savior. We ask, Father, that you would remember her, show divine favor upon her, continue to love her, protect her from the snares of the evil one, nurture her, and that you will be with this family as they raise her as they serve you. Lord, may you bless this time and bless this sacrament in Jesus' name. Amen. Leah, way to go, pointing at me. Yes, I am the one doing this. Ellen, bring her a little closer. Leah May Skillingfad, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that this morning Leah has been brought into the visible church, that she, we pray, belongs to you. She is your child. We ask, Father, that there would never be a day that she doesn't know you. 
and we thank you so much for her parents, and we thank you for your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Absolutely. We've seen a sign and a seal of God's love. Let's sing of God's love. Let's stand and sing how deep the Father's love for us. Part of the covenant is that God is our God and we are his people. If you are in Jesus Christ, he's adopted you into his family. You are his son or daughter.
And that gives us the privilege of free, open communion with him. Let's pray together as individuals, as a church. We will pray in unison the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, and then I will lead us in a time of prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, on this day when we are specifically looking at how you relate to us, who you are, and the fact that you relate to us by virtue of covenant, and that may sound like a a heady theological word, but what it really means is that the distance between us and you is so great, like a deep, bottomless cavern or chasm that we could never cross, that you chose to come down, take the initiative, and come to us and do so by virtue of relating to us in this way called a covenant. You bond yourself to us. And that's why through Jesus Christ we get to say, Our Father, we know that you personally knit yourself to our hearts and care for us. You tell us in your word, cast all our cares upon you because you care about us. So far... Anyone who is hurting, anyone who is sick, anyone who is struggling, anyone who is undergoing trial, temptation, affliction, loss, grief, pain, we lift them up before you in the sure and certain knowledge that you care about them, that you have covenanted and bonded yourself to them. For those who are facing whether it's surgery or medical tests or consultations, we ask, Father, your peace and your presence to go before them. Father, I pray for the leadership of the church. I pray for Travis and Ellen, and I pray for Mike and Whitney. I pray, Father, that you would sell their house and bring them to us. I pray for the elders and for the deacons, the home fellowship group leaders, the women's ministry, the choir, Sunday school teachers, all who are working to make disciples of all nations, fill us with a sense of your glory. Fill us with a sense of the gospel. Help us to be astonished at how good the good news is. Because what we're to be about is proclaiming your glory. And how can we proclaim something we don't know and we aren't filled with? So give us an overwhelming sense of your glory. You promise your eyes and your heart will be with your temple, the church, forever. Your glory is here. May this not be a rote, casual thing that we are doing this morning. May this not be a going through the motions. May we be confronted with your glory, with a very dangerous and yet comforting thing. Lord, we pray that we would boast in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, that He would be our glory. Lord, as in just a few moments as I proclaim Your Word, there are times I just get overwhelmed with the magnitude of it. I know 
I'm not sufficient to the task. And I pray to decrease. And I pray, Jesus, that it will be all about you. And that we will be confronted with you this morning. Father, thank you for the gathering of your saints. The gathering of your children. Thank you for your glory, your honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
may be seated. If you're new or you're visiting with us, we're going through, uh, I call it Paul's magnum opus, the letter to the Romans. And we're doing it in several different smaller snippets so that I don't take the better part of 25 years doing it and we never get to any other part uh, of the Bible. And we're in probably one of the more challenging sections, certainly challenging to me to preach, and more than likely challenging for you to hear as well. We are in Romans 9 to 11, where Paul is dealing with a very mysterious, very delicate doctrine. It's called the doctrine of election. And I'll define it as we go through. Here's my hope if you're new and visiting with us. I began this last week, and one of the things that I'm thinking, I may not succeed at this, but this is at least where I'm going to try, is I want to not only define it, but make it as real and as practical. Uh, and maybe even, maybe I'm dreaming big here. I'm swinging for the fences with this. Life-changing and transforming for us. So that's my hope. And so if you have Bibles, we, look, we introduced this passage last week. We're going to dive into a few more of the particulars this week of Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So that's the first part in terms of defining the doctrine of election. The question here is, is God fair? Is God righteous? And the practical side of that is, can God be trusted? When Paul writes, is there injustice on God's part? He says, by no means. And now appealing to the Old Testament he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And your word, all scripture, is breathed out and inspired by you. It is your word. It is not mine. And it's useful to teach us, to train us, to correct us, to discipline us. And so, Lord, may you show us its usefulness. May we come to see you maybe in some newer ways. I know I'm totally reliant and dependent upon you. May we all, even as we hear this, even as there's things we may struggle with, 
May we depend upon you to show us what you desire and want to show us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question, and be honest with me. We're all about fairness, aren't we? We want what's fair. I bet if I sat in a living room with some of you watching a University of Georgia football game, not that they ever lose, but if they lost, I guarantee you it'd be the ref's fault, wouldn't it? It's not fair. I can invite you to my living room. In fact, I'm excited. I had to do this illustration this morning because it's two weeks till pitchers and catchers report. I get very excited this time of year because Yankees baseball is coming back. So if you want to have fun, if you want to know your pastor is a sinful man who needs the grace of Jesus, come over and watch a Yankees game with me sometime. Because they never throw a ball. They're all, you know, they never... It's always the umpire's fault. The Yankees have not won a championship since 2009, and I guarantee you they should have won the championship in 2017. They were cheated out of it by those sign-stealing scandal of the Houston Astros. See, it's all about fairness. We're all about justice. I grew up in a family, I was the oldest of three boys, three brothers, and it was a constant refrain around our house. It's not fair. Now again, in all honesty, I'm the oldest, I got away with the most. I have, you know, my younger brothers would always say, why does Jeff get to do that? Why is Jeff not in trouble? I tell them today they were right. I knew how to milk the system pretty well. Fairness is an issue of justice. And we're, when we're defining election, we have to do so. And I know that's a $64,000 theological term. And I'll get to it in a few minutes. But I want to encourage us, keep it in context. I have to stick to what the Word of God is saying here. And in this particular section, this particular passage, what Paul is doing is defending the justice and the righteousness of God. He is speaking against the charge, against the objection that God is not fair, that God is not just. That's why verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The rest of the passage is saying, by no means is there injustice on God's part. Let me tell you why. And he's going to give two reasons why. The testimony of the story and the logic of the story. Look with me at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, and of course he's picking up with it because up through verse 13, he's going through, and these are folks, remember when this was written, okay, first century, they didn't have the New Testament writing, the full Bible wasn't put in a bound form the way we have it today. They didn't have iPhones or iPads where you could pull it out. What they had at this point was the Old Testament. That was the scriptures they were familiar with. So Paul is making his case by alluding back to the Old Testament. He's already talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, friends, if you're biblical scholars, what comes in the biblical story after Genesis? Exodus. And who's the lead character in Exodus? Moses. So Paul is going through the story of God, and he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was a major character in the Moses story in the Exodus, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, there are many controversial statements here, statements that can be misunderstood, statements that can be misapplied. I said this last week, we need to approach this with much care and much humility. Yes, Paul is asserting quite clearly the doctrine of election. And here's what election means. Here's how it's defined. It means if we belong to Christ, if we're reconciled to God, if we are adopted as his child, if we have all the blessings of salvation, it is due to God's choice and will, not our own. It means that our salvation, our reconciliation to God is totally dependent on God. It is his choice of us and not our choice of God. Now, we spoke last week why it can't be our choice of God or our autonomous choice of God, and that's because of our condition. Our condition is that we are born in sin, and Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. And so if you're dead, what can a dead person do? Choose! Come on! Choose! And I'm not trying to make light of it, but this is the logic of it. And so if we're going to believe, and yes, it requires a response of faith. Election is not denying and it's not negating faith, the response of turning to God. What it is saying is something has to happen prior. Something has to happen first. And that is God has to choose to give us the ability to believe on him. So he makes us alive. It's called regeneration. See, this is, pretend this is theology class. He makes us alive and he gives us the ability to believe and then we can respond. What do we experience? Responding. But if we've responded, it's because God has done a prior work in us. Praise God. And we're going to see that part of the practicality of it. Now, if we're seeing that we would never or we could never choose God, so it's God's choice of us that determines salvation. One of the things that that says is, huh, well, wait a second. That's not fair. So God doesn't choose everyone? Well, let's look at the topic of God's justice for a second. One of my favorite writers, one of my favorite commentators on this is a man by the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to how he puts it. He says, Paul is saying here, if you want to bring in the notion of justice, if you really want what's fair, very well, you will get what's coming to you. You will get what you deserve. You will get your wages, and the wages of sin is death. If God's salvation were totally a matter of justice and righteousness, all would be damned. Nobody has any claim upon God's mercy. The fact that anybody has ever received mercy is entirely because of the character and nature and goodness and kindness and benevolence of God. 
Lloyd-Jones writes, the real mystery is not that everybody is not saved, but that anybody is saved. The mystery of God is God knows owes nothing to anybody. The text clearly tells us, verse 16, so then it, meaning salvation, depends not on human will. If it depended on human will, nobody could do it. You don't have the ability. That was the topic of last week's sermon. But on God, who has mercy. And let's remember something else. For mercy to be mercy. Think about what the definition of mercy is. Mercy is help for the helpless. It's not help for those who have some ability. It's not help for those who are middle class in spiritual virtue. It's help for the dead. It's help for the powerless. It's help for the helpless. And so for mercy to be mercy, it must be 100%, not 50%, not 75%, 100% dependent and reliant upon God. That's why our condition is the starting point. And let's remember something else. Nowhere in the scriptures is this a doctrine where we're somehow to beat up non-believers with it or show how smart we are to our fellow believers, kind of like proving, aren't we enlightened? I've heard writers put this, when we were in our cage stage, meaning angry in terms of this, that is not the point of this doctrine at all. The practical side, and this is where I'm shooting for the fences here, if we're going to be biblical this, with this doctrine, we need to remember that the reason it's in the scripture is to lead us to worship. The point of this doctrine is to overwhelm us with the facts. Again, not why is not everybody saved. Why am I saved? Why would God open my heart to believe? My friend Scotty Smith, who is a pastor, would say we should be overwhelmed and marinate in gospel astonishment. That's what I want from my heart, and that's what I want for this church. For us to be absolutely blown away by the goodness and the glory and the greatness of the grace of God. That we would come each and every Sunday in our broken state, our fragile state, our hurting state, no matter what state we are in, and hear about the glory of Jesus. That's why Paul, and I love the letters of Paul, but that's why Paul, and let me say, Paul was all about worship and not about grammar. Because especially in the original, when you read Paul, he's like one giant run-on sentence. And you want to know why he's one giant run-on sentence? He begins thinking about the grace and mercy of Christ. And he is just overwhelmed. He is just blown away. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, and there's no commas and there's no periods, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, even as, and here's election, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in order that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul is not arguing about fairness and justice and free will and autonomy. 
He is overwhelmed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, shown favor upon us, thought about us, cared about us, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So that's why even when, and here's Paul alluding back to the story of Moses, when he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and he's giving the testimony here, there's a couple things we need to pick up here. First of all, when he's talking about Pharaoh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, God's not being unfair there. Because what was Pharaoh when God raised him up? Pharaoh was already a sinner. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. Again, the wonder, we were born with hard hearts that turned away from God. The wonder is not that, why should God not show mercy to Pharaoh? The wonder is, why did God show mercy to us? Why did God show mercy to us? And then something else recognize this. When he says, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Did you catch that? The purpose is proclaiming the name, the glory of God. Being missional is all about proclaiming the glory of God. That we would be so about, that's what it means, may I never boast except in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be so overwhelmed and overcome with glory that it would flow from us and we would be about proclaiming the glory of God. Not obsessed with all the questions about the philosophical nature. Part of me wants to go, and I'll pick on myself for a second. When I start to think about the philosophical questions concerning this, I just want to go, stop it, Jeff. Knock it off. That's not why it's in the Scripture. It's in the Scripture to draw us to worship, which leads to the logic of the story. Look with me at verse 19, and he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Again, what's going on here, and Tim Keller has the following statement. He says, here he's saying that God made us and that therefore he has rights of ownership. Some, many of you, I've lived here now just short of two years, a year and a half, and I am blown away by the talents so many of you all have. Painting, photography, I told my friend Bill Benzer I was going to choose him this morning, woodworking. Have you ever seen any of the woodworking Bill Benzer does? It's absolutely beautiful, and it's amazing. Now, here's the logic, and this is what Paul is getting here. Does the wood have the right to say to Bill, um, Bill, excuse me, you're doing it wrong. You're messing up here. I didn't want to be a bowl. I wanted to be this. That's the logic of what's going on here. One of the things we have to realize is God is God and we are not. And we don't understand everything about God. We don't understand everything. 
Which is why Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And again, what are we to do with this? How does this transform us? How does this change us? Again, if we understand, rather than trying to figure everything out, that if we got what we deserve, if God were actually fair, we would get our wages, that we deserve death, hell, damnation, then the fact that God shows us mercy ought to produce galvanizing worship and a humble love towards others. Tim Keller writes, nothing can fill you with so much praise and joy as to realize that not one molecule of credit for your salvation belongs to you, but to the Lord. If I can take any of the credit, think about this. If it was up to us, we freely chose to accept God, then we should be singing, praise us from whom all blessings flow. But because it depends 1,000%, not one molecule of the credit goes to us, we praise God and God alone from whom all blessings flow. Keller writes, since I can take no credit, God gets all the praise. And think about it. God has chosen... He's elected. What is election all about? It's not just about individual. God's not up there play, playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo. What he did was he chose, and this is the testimony of the rest of Scripture, he chose for there to be a bride for his son. Talk about an intimate relationship. God the Father has given a bride, and the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. We are Jesus' bride. He's enamored with us. And our being a part of the bride of Christ has nothing to do with us, completely by the sovereign will, grace, and mercy of God. And think about what it cost Jesus, what it cost God to make us his bride. He was the Lamb of God, slaughtered and slain for our salvation. He laid down his life. That's why the scriptures elsewhere say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Obviously, we're not going to lay down our life literally or physically, most of us, like that. But our love for our wives is to be modeled and patterned after Christ's love for us. He gave himself up for us on the cross. Friends, if we got what we deserved, where would we be? But God elected, he chose for Jesus to get what we deserved. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That doesn't, he knew no sin. That means he got what we deserve. The wages for sin is death. Jesus received that judgment. Jesus received the judgment of God so that in him, do you know what we get? What he deserved. The righteousness of God. And the more we think about that, the more we marinate in that. I love Scotty Smith's words. The more we absolutely soak in the glory of the gospel, there should never be a debate about election, predestination, or anything. We should just absolutely, oh, worship the king, all glorious above, oh, gratefully sing his wonder and his love. Can you imagine that he loves us like that? I can't. That's beyond imagination for me. 
I'd almost say it's too good to be true. And yet it's true. And friends, I want you to taste that. That's my heart. I want, I want, wish for every single one of us to taste the goodness of Christ, the mercy of Christ towards you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your mercy. If we got what we deserve, where would we be? Lord God, may we boast. May we never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May Jesus, you be our obsession, our boast, our glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close our service singing to God be the glory. benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, 
and forevermore. Amen.